0: Well, it is a privilege to be with you in worship this morning. Please turn in your Bibles with me to our sermon text. It's found in 1 Thessalonians, and it's the first three verses. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, what a privilege it is to come and worship you to you hear your word read and preached. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit, working through your word. We ask that you would soften our hard hearts and give us ears to hear. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us and impress your heart on us that we might be transformed into the new man, that we might better reflect your own heart, reflecting our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Writing letters is almost a lost art now, but it was not certainly lost in the time of the New Testament church. In fact, much of the New Testament is made up of letters. Today, when we write letters, we usually say, Dear so-and-so, and then end it with whoever it's from. But in the New Testament, as you see in our text here, it begins with who it's from and then says to who it's for. It's more like a Christmas gift label, isn't it? It's to or from this person to this person. And maybe we should be more excited to read the Bible if we think about it as a Christmas gift. Or just as a gift in general. Because indeed that is what it is: a gift. This is the word of God, not the word of men. And As the text says later on, actually, the Thessalonians received the word of God from the apostles as the word of God and not as the word of men. It had a work inside their hearts. So this is how it begins, with the classic greeting. And as we've just greeted one another in the peace of the Lord, so also the apostles greet the Thessalonians. One of the questions here, though, is, Why are these authors writing to the Thessalonians? Paul we're pretty familiar with. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, right? He went on his missionary journeys and um, served in all sorts of ways. He's responsible for much of the New Testament even. And it's on one of Paul's missionary journeys that he comes to Thessalonica and establishes the church there. He shares the word of God and the church grows, this is found in Acts 17, if you ever want to look it up. And I'm going to be referring to Acts 17 again, so just kind of hold that in your mind. So this is Paul. Paul is the, one of the first people to bring the gospel, in fact, probably the first person to bring the gospel to Thessalonica. Now, what about Sylvinus? This is an unusual name. we are probably not familiar with that one. But it might be helpful to know that Sylvinus and Silas are the same person. They did this sometimes. They would have two different ways of saying the same person's name. You might think of Simon Peter. Sylvanus or Silas, perhaps you remember, traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys. He's also there in Acts 17, as they come to Thessalonica and share the gospel, and they're met with persecution. The Jews in the area are uh, uh, outraged at the preaching of the gospel and actually drive them out of the city so Silas is there, and he's driven out with Paul, even, as they're facing this persecution. And Timothy, we might know, he is the one to whom the letters were written by uh, Paul, First and 2 Timothy. Interestingly enough, he's not mentioned in Acts 17, but he is mentioned in Acts 16. And in there, he joins Paul and Silas. And he's not mentioned after that, but there's no point in which he would have departed from their company. So, it's likely that these three men were the three men who first brought the gospel to the church in Thessalonica, to who established the church there by God's grace. Now, maybe some of you grew up in church, and maybe some of you didn't. Those of you who first heard the gospel after having grown up outside the church probably remember that person who first told the gospel to you, and Throughout your Christian life, you've had mentors who have helped you grow in the gospel. These are outstanding men. It's appropriate that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are writing here for that reason. And if you grew up in the church, probably your parents and pastor first introduced you to the gospel, and you could probably recall who they were. Hopefully you can recall who your parents are. So this is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They have an vested interest in the church in Thessalonica. And the occasion for writing is that Timothy had just visited Thessalonica to bring a report back to see how things were going. And it was a very good report. If they were students, they would have got all A's. They did just an excellent job. They were excelling in faith, love, and hope. And these are our three points this morning. So, this is our introduction. It's a little bit of a longer introduction, but don't worry, the guys in the back told me they'll cut me off if I go too long, so you'll be okay. <clears throat> so our first point is faith, or a work of faith. They write, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. They're praying and thankful that God has done this work of faith among the Thessalonican, the Thessalonian church. Now, one of the questions we should be asking immediately is, what is a work of faith? You might say, well, that's just a work that you do by faith. Okay, okay, but what is that? This is an idea that not only can be easily misunderstood, but is easily misunderstood. Something that might challenge us as well as being Presbyterians and Reformed is that Work and faith are here together. What what are they doing together, Paul? Haven't you read the solas? Don't you know that it's faith alone and not by works? Well, don't worry. Paul is not saying you're saved by works. You're saved by faith alone. But before we look at what Paul actually is saying, let's think about some of these misunderstandings. Outside of the church, there's this popular idea of faith which is the, some mystical force, isn't it? It's almost like the force of, in Star Wars. It's this idea that you can sum up within yourself the ability to generate something and make something happen. Oprah would be a popularizer of this, who says, by the power of positive thinking, you can bring something else into reality. You can project it into reality. Now, I hope you recognize this as thoroughly pagan and not what they're talking about here. In this view, faith is something that you're generating inside yourself and it's you making something else happen according to your own will. Now inside the church, there are, this has actually sadly been adopted by some people inside the church. It's not exclusively outside that first understanding. But inside the church there are other misunderstandings too. There's the idea that by faith you can say healed, and somebody will be healed. Or if you have enough faith, then you will be healed. And it's, it's as if you can measure up this faith to make something else happen in reality. In fact, it's very similar to this view that Oprah puts forward, isn't it? Where you are making something happen by your own force of faith. Or, perhaps even worse, it's you believing that if you think something hard enough to happen, then God will actually subject himself to your will and make it happen. This is a dangerous misunderstanding of how faith works, isn't it? But it's actually really common. So what is faith? What's the proper understanding of faith and how a work of faith would look? Well, biblical faith is faith that God will actually do what he said he's going to do. It's not trusting in yourself to be able to bring something about, nor is it you summing up in yourself to make either reality or God bend to your will. But rather it's you submitting to the will of God, trusting that what he said will happen is actually what will happen. And so you're able to live and act according to God's revealed will. This is what it is to live by faith. And to do a work of faith is to do a work according to this understanding. Now, a work of faith actually has two sides to it. There's an internal side and an external side. Internally, faith has its work inside of you. This is what Calvin points out. He says, faith is a gift given from God. And as you are receiving faith you're bolstered in your confidence that God actually is the one who saved you, that Jesus died for you. Your confidence in the gospel is there. Um, You are really, you're enabled to believe the gospel initially to begin with. And as faith continues to work in you, you continue to grow in the truth of God. So this is the internal side. It's the work of faith in the sense that faith has its work in you. It's faith's work, so to speak. Or God's working faith in you. In the external side. And this is the work of faith that we want to get to here. It's not that you are saved by your works. Work of faith. It's not destroying the solas of faith alone. But rather this faith that God has worked in you. Has changed you. So that you now live according to your faith. And you live it out. You um, Act according to what you, what you believe. If you believe that Jesus really did die for your sins, then you will trust and have confidence that you're forgiven. You won't have to condemn yourself. If you believe that Jesus really is going to redeem his church and that the church is his gathered body, and this is the elect that he's gathering together for the day of redemption when he returns, then you'll actually stay in the church trusting that this is what God is doing as it is the ark of safety if you really believe that Jesus is going to come back to judge the living and the dead then all of your actions will be first filtered through that reality as well as the way that you interact with others and the way that you warn them that this is coming because There's a real judgment coming, and your loved ones are in danger if they're not in Christ. So this has a real outward working. In fact, if you believe that Jesus is the only hope in life and death, that he's the only hope of salvation, then you'll share it with others, and you'll cling to Christ yourself. And this is almost definitely what Paul is talking about here with the Thessalonians as their work of faith, as he goes on later to talk about how their faith has been known throughout all of Macedonia and Achaia and all the known world. In fact, at one point in the letter, he says, your faith is so known everywhere that we don't even need to tell people. We we show up and they're telling us the gospel instead. Jehalem Valley, can you imagine if you were to go and share the gospel, I don't know, I don't know where your mission works are, but in Ukraine or Russia. And you were to show up there, ready to share and tell people. And they said, oh yeah, we know about the gospel. Um, There's this church in the Willamette Valley in Oregon and they love God and their faith has been known everywhere. Can you imagine that? That is actually the working of faith that um, the Thessalonians were known for. Their faith was known everywhere. So there's really an evangelistic side to this work of faith. Now, there's many other works of faith. Praying is one of the greatest works of faith. It's entrusting yourself to God entirely because it's not your will being done, but God's will. Trusting that he really is sovereign and in control. These are the works of faith. Now, our works of faith are not done in just a cold sort of statuary way, statuary, that's probably not the right word, following cold commandments. It's not that you're saved by grace, and then you now have to remain saved by working out your salvation. Your works of faith are done because you have known the love of God, and you're trusting in him. He is your only hope, and so you're looking to him and loving him. This is our second point the works of faith become labors of love. In fact, they are known for works of faith and labors of love. How are these two things different? We just noted that a work of faith is trusting God according to his promises. So, a labor of love would be acting according to God's love for you. There's an internal side and an external side to this as well. Internally, to labor for love, you first have to be loved by God. This is what 1 John tells us. We love because he first loved us. For the Thessalonians, the reality of what Christ had done had so transformed the way that they thought about everything and transformed their hearts and made them alive that they now beat differently. Their hearts were now beating for the sake of God to seek his favor, to try to please him because he has been so kind and loving to them. God's love is what transformed the Thessalonians. Now, the heart of the Christian is stirred to desire God seek to please him. And so, externally, there are labors of love that occur. Now, anybody who has ever been in love knows that there are costly points to love. One of the biblical examples that's given is Jacob in Genesis as he labors seven years for Rachel. And the Bible says, Jacob labored seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. This is an excellent example of what laboring for love is. And this is what it is for the Christian. We labor out of love for Christ, because he has loved us so much. We, in this life, have many things to do, as we wait for Christ's return. And these are labors of love that we do in in between, as we face these light momentary afflictions. And if you think about light momentary afflictions throughout the history of the church, that includes persecutions, where people are dying, it includes all sorts of horrible tortures. And yet, the Christian can say they're light momentary afflictions because they're done out of love for Christ. You undoubtedly have challenges in your life, things that make it difficult to be a Christian your own sin fighting against you in your Christian walk. These challenges, as difficult as they may be, are light and momentary because the love that God has shown you and the love that awaits at the consummation is so wonderful and magnificent. The glory of that time is so much more and makes this so little Christian, as you live out the challenges in this life, do it out of love for God. If you don't do it out of love for God, what will happen is you will become frustrated, cold, hard, maybe even angry and bitter with God. But remember what Christ has done for you and operate out of that. Now, in your bulletins on the front, there's actually a quote by Herman Veldkamp. He says, commenting on this verse, it's like a mother who finds bliss in the painful labor of childbirth. I've never had a child. gone through childbirth, and we don't have kids yet, so I haven't seen it. But it sounds painful, and I can't imagine anything more painful than that. The idea of finding bliss in the middle of childbirth is really quite foreign to me. The only way to find bliss in the middle of that is out of love for that child that's being born. And I'm sure the mothers know this. Labor of love really is hard work. It's painful, and it takes sacrifice. It may even cost you your life as you're laboring out of love for God. This is what Jesus said. He said... Greater love has no one than this, and that he laid down his life for his friend. No matter what the cost, the one who loves finds the person, the object of his love, to be worth it. It makes the cost diminish because of the love that he has or she has. The Thessalonian church had become known for their costly love. If you looked back in Acts 17, you would be reminded that the Jews persecuted the church and actually drove out the apostles. And this church was born in a time of difficulty. And yet, what they're known for is not their ability to fight and destroy the Jews or to argue their way to the top, but they're known for their love. This is how they endured the trials that were ahead of them, because they had known the love of Christ. Now, I didn't say anything about what these labors actually look like yet, and there's so many of them. There's, this impacts the way that you relate to God and the way you relate to everybody else, isn't it? Ephesians 5 is helpful. It talks about how husbands are to love their wives and lay down their lives for their wives and how wives are to submit to their husbands, and it gives this structure, but this structure is a structure of love where... The husband, who is the head, is to actually lay down his life and make himself lower, that he might raise his wife up in love. And the wife is to submit to her husband and make herself lower, that she might raise her husband up in love. And this is how the relationships of Christians work. And it's not just true for husbands and wives, but children and parents and siblings and employer and employee. Ephesians 5 actually goes through this whole list, and it goes into chapter 6 as well. We usually just stop at the marriage part. The church is what is in focus here. The Thessalonians are writing to the church in Thessalonica, saying that they were performing labors of love. This is probably referring to a corporate act of love. How do churches labor in love? One of the ways is simply by going out and telling other people how wonderful it is to go to church. Maybe you've even been annoyed by somebody who has said that their church is so wonderful and you're like, okay, I get it. But stop and think about how wonderful that is that they love their church. That is great. Now, that's an individual, not a corporate act. Corporately, we also have These diaconal ministries, the deacons who are serving in all sorts of ways. They um, are helping with those who are in need in the church and those who are in need even outside the church. You guys maybe have uh, outreach programs. Now, it's not just evangelistic. It's also seeking to help people in their actual physical, well, spiritual needs are actual, in their physical needs as well. Perhaps the most practical way to apply this to ourselves is to repurpose a quote from one of the presidents. Don't ask what the church can do for you. Ask what you can do for the church or what you can do as a member of the church out of love for God. The Thessalonians did this well. They excelled and Perhaps you guys excel as well. You guys were very warm and welcoming to me this morning, so my immediate impression is that you probably do excel in labors of love, but I'll leave that for you all to judge among yourselves. Later in the book, to the Thessalonians, the authors write and say, you're doing well. Continue to grow in your labors of love. And so... Don't think that you are already there because you maybe are doing a good job. But continue to grow in your love for God and for others until your heart matches the heart of God, the heart of Christ. We've got a lot of work ahead of us. At least if we're giving ourselves an honest uh, evaluation. As Christians, we are working through this life, laboring and growing in our love because we are looking forward to that day when we get to know God and his love fully, when we get to see the one whom we love face to face, we're looking forward to the return of Christ and eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the steadfastness of hope for the Christian, and this is our third point. Now, as we come to this third point, it's worth noting that the order that Paul gives here is faith, love, and hope. This is a little different than maybe the order that we're familiar with, isn't it? Where it's faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, Paul's not contradicting himself here, but he's actually making a point of priority. And throughout the letter of the First Thessalonians, he actually follows this pattern. He starts with faith, and he goes to love, and then he goes to hope. But he's putting this all together with the trajectory that we would look for our hope in Christ that we would look forward to that day when he returns. The Thessalonians were, in fact, looking forward to the return of Christ. This is something that the apostles were grateful for. They were trusting that the promises were true. They were living according to the promises of the gospel. They were willingly sacrificing their time and their money and their resources for the sake of Christ, and they were doing it because they were looking forward to the day when they would be with their Savior. They were looking, doing it knowing that Christ could come back at any moment, and they were looking forward to that. They were excited. Now, the apostles are grateful for their steadfastness of hope, not just that they had hope at one point in time, but that they endured in their hope. I am afraid that sometimes as Christians we confuse hope with the idea of being saved once and you once looked forward to Christ's return, but since you've been saved, now other things have come up in life and you hope that maybe Jesus waits just a little bit before he comes back. Maybe you've even caught yourself saying this. It's not bad to have other hopes in this life. It's good to hope for children and to be married if you're looking forward to that or um, maybe to grow in your position at work. These are good hopes. But if you find yourself saying, I hope Jesus waits just a little bit so that way I can do this instead, then your priority of hope is getting disorganized. It's being, it's, uh, it's wrong. We should be quick to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because our hope is ultimately in Christ. This is the hope that trumps all other hopes. In fact, as we're laboring in this life, we're laboring with the hope that Christ will return soon and we'll get to be with him. But it is a challenge to us, isn't it? We don't always want to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. What do you prefer over Christ's return? What do you hope for hap- to, what do you hope happens before Jesus comes back? You Should think about this, because are you putting this above your desire for Jesus to return, over your desire to see Jesus face to face? We know the answer should be no. We're not putting anything over it, but we do this. I'm convinced that it's the lack of endurance and hope, steadfastness of hope, that the church has slowed down or ceased in their labors of love and their works of faith. That it's no longer that we're looking for Jesus to come ultimately, but maybe we're looking forward to the world to be just a better place, for the right politician to come into place, Everything that happens in this life, whether it's politicians or cultural changes, is all part of God's plan. This is all part of our journey towards when Jesus comes back. If heaven, though, is our hope, then the thoughts of this world take their rightful place as subordinate to the glory of Christ. Jesus really is our only hope in life and death. This is, in one sense, the whole of the Christian life, isn't it? Living with this hope, as you're trusting that the promises are true and living them out and giving your life for the sake of the gospel, you're doing it because you're hoping that you will actually get to be with Christ and enjoy his presence. The gospel doesn't just stop with being forgiven of our sins. The gospel promises go all the way to eternity, where we get to be with our Savior. Perhaps when we get distracted by the things of this world or other priorities in life, we should remember the lines to that little hymn, which tells us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. To look full into his wonderful face. Because when we do that, then the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is where our hope rests. Christians, saints, let's live as people who really believe the gospel, who really do hope that Jesus is going to come back and that'll be the greatest thing ever. Let's live for that day. Let's pray together. Father God, you are in fact all glorious and all wonderful. Your glory shines so bright that we sometimes want to turn away from it. And yet, as people have been made alive, to see your glory is beautiful... We just want more of you. Please continue to grow us in our faith and our love and our hope. Help us to persevere as Christians that we would live for that day when Jesus returns. And may we be people in this life who really say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we know that being with you will be the best there ever is. Please soften our hearts, Lord. Grow us in love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.